I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, thank you so much. It's really uh, great to be here. Um, I um, first read Brian's book on a on an aeroplane in 2005 because I was asked to review it for the New Statesman. And um, I started reading it, and I read it all night. I remember I was pretty miserable at the time. I was broke. I was probably broken-hearted. And I was completely, utterly captivated by it. And so um, for many, many reasons. Um, and I have a huge list of things I'd like to talk to Brian about. But um, I was thrilled when Fitzcarraldo decided to reissue the book. Um, and... I was thrilled by it from a reader's perspective, from what I remembered about the book, and from a writer's perspective as well, because um, one of the things that struck me about the book was that uh, I lost a parent around the same time that your parents died. And so a lot about the time, although we were in different places, resonated with me. And then I've been, since then, trying to write about that experience myself. But talking to um, some people at lunch today, I said what I was going to do, and they said, oh, what's the book about? And I suddenly realised I struggled and there was a sort of hesitation about the book. So I'd mm. like to really begin by, by asking you that sort of really, in some ways, quite awful question. Mm. What is the book about or what is the book? And perhaps you could tell us and maybe read some from the beginning. I will. I'll read from the beginning in a, uh, in a moment. But um, I just want to say also thank you uh, for, for doing this. Um, Sophie's review of the book in 2005 was, uh, was amazing um, and did a lot for it, for its then very modest uh, success, if that's the word. Um, the book, um, probably the best way to say what the book is about is to say how it came about, which is um, about eight years before I wrote it, um, when I was a graduate student um, and I was supposed to be writing a PhD uh, thesis um, and doing very badly at writing my PhD thesis, which I think at that stage was about five years in. So it was at least two years overdue. Um, nobody could do this nowadays. You would not get away with this. Um, and I was having a real crisis, both personally and in terms of academic work. Um, and I was dimly aware that I didn't really want to be doing a PhD, and I didn't really want to be an academic. Um, and I 
started uh, in the evenings in my dismal little room um, writing fragments of something. I wasn't sure what they were in response to the very few, I think, 30-something family photographs that I possessed at that point. Photographs of myself and my my two brothers uh, and my parents, photographs of my parents before I I was born. And I was trying to do something with these pictures, um, trying to remember, in the sort of crudest terms, like try to remember details about my childhood, uh, stuff that I hadn't thought about in years. And at some point I thought, God, wouldn't it be great to write a book like this that was just based on trying to uh, tunnel into, trying to excavate your way uh, into these pictures. And this title popped into my head in the dark room, which is a rather random phrase um, from T.S. Eliot, from Gerontion. It's not a memorable phrase. That's a poem that's full of memorable phrases, um, like signs taken for wonders uh, and so on. Um, And the phrase just hung around in my head, and I thought, if I ever am lucky enough to write a book, um, I'm going to call it In the Dark Room. And it will start with the image, first of all, of my parents photographed um, before I was born, and second with, and I'll talk a bit uh, about this um, later on, with the image of my mother's hands. My mother died when I was uh, 16, just after my 16th birthday, and my dad died uh, five years later. And in 2003 or four, when um, I accidentally acquired an agent, um, same agent as uh, as Sophie, um, he asked me if I could write, or if somebody could write, a kind of cultural history of memory that was somehow about um, the, the machinery, the things through which one remembers one's own life or the lives or, or the, the presence of loved ones. In other words, um, objects, images, places, um, and so on. And I thought, yes, I'm absolutely the person to write a, a cultural history of, mem- of memory. It's an insane ambition. It's totally stupid. It's a life's work. It's not a book. Um, and I said, yes, fine, sign me up. Um, and, and Penguin, He's very persuasive. He's very persuasive. Yeah. Um, and Penguin did, and I, I had found already an amazing editor, Brendan Barrington at uh, Penguin Ireland, who also edits um, the great journal, literary journal, the Dublin Review. And I started to try to write this book, and it took me maybe a week before I realized that it was, in fact, not a cultural history of memory. It was the book I had thought about aged 26 or 27, Um, that I had thought of writing about my parents. And so what the book is, is an attempt to write my own personal history of the loss of my parents as a teenager and young adult, and at the same time to say something about um, the literary representation of memory, and especially of mourning, um, especially of grief and mourning, and doing that through um, very discreet categories, um, which are the the respective chapters, um, the house, objects, um, bodies, images, photographs rather, um, and uh, there's a short coda to do with music. So that's how the book came about, and I didn't at the time want to call it a memoir, um, although Claire called it a memoir, and I think I would call it a memoir now. But it was 2005, and it was the era of what was then called the Misery Memoir. Um, And not only was it the era of the the Misery Memoir, but it was definitely the era of the Irish Misery (laughs) Memoir. 
And so the very last thing that I wanted to be doing was writing another Irish misery memoir. That was one of the worst mistakes I've ever made as a, uh, as a writer, or at least as a publicist of my own writing. I should have called it a memoir. I should have owned up to the fact that it was, in fact, first and foremost a personal book, including in its relationship with literature and photography and philosophy and so on. Well, maybe we'll come back to that sort of resistance to placing the self mm. at the centre after you've read from the beginning of the book. So the first chapter um, is simply called House, um, and it starts with this section, uh, which I'm going to read a couple of pages of, um, which is called View by Appointment. The house in question stands at the western end of an almost semicircular road that curves off a wider suburban thoroughfare. Approach from that end, the house remains invisible until one has rounded a long, thickly hedged garden on the left. Even then, it would not be the first one you noticed opposite you in a row of architecturally identical, semi-detached homes. Your eye might be drawn instead by the pristine paintwork of a house a few doors to the right, one of the few to have retained the original look of a 1930s semi, or by the newly concreted garden of the house next door, or by the abutting house on the left with its comic grid of mock Tudor window frames. The house we're approaching refuses to accost the eye in any way. Indeed, it seems to have retreated from the street, to have settled itself a little further back in space and time. Perhaps one's gaze doesn't settle swiftly on this house because the colour of its pebble-dashed exterior is oddly indeterminate. It's certainly a kind of grey, but a grey so lifeless it barely registers on the retina. It might have been chosen to make the house fade into the clouds above or to seem a blunt outcrop of the pavement below. The owners of the house would tell you that when it was painted a decade ago, it looked almost tasteful, but the colour, if it is a colour, has faded with shocking rapidity. The structure itself looks as though it has been subject to an alarming erosion, here and there kept at bay by repairs and additions that appear only to have accelerated the decay, to have burdened the house with a weight of optimism it can no longer bear. On top of the wall of the small front garden, a fresh concrete pediment caps a structure that's visibly crumbling onto the pavement outside. By the low iron gate, the slightest pressure on the right-hand pillar will cause it to rock back and forth with a worrying crunch. The pebble dash is dropping off in chunks, the window sills are spalling, the green paint on the front door is peeling away to reveal several previous generations of the same green. If you were to risk a knock at the door, in other words, if you'd taken the for sale sign outside as an invitation and not a warning that something was amiss here, the mottled chrome handle would come off in your hand, and if you reached for the doorbell, the resulting toneless rasp would be enough to dispel any thoughts of domestic harmony. It's a house that might have been abandoned long ago or given up as a concrete franchise on hope by its inhabitants, left to eke out its last days along with their dwindling prospects. But behind its elderly net curtains, something is moving, ending and beginning. The house is being transformed so that before long its interior, which is still full of the stuff of several lives, will start to resemble its sorry exterior and speak only of what it once was, how it was made out of hopes, plans and dreams that have absconded, leaving their grey shadows behind. 
It's the autumn of 1993, and I'm standing in the sitting room of the house in which I grew up, and which, within the hour, I will leave for the last time. I'm aching and fuddled from lack of sleep, having spent the previous night frantically trying to dispose of the last solid remnants of a shared life that disintegrated long ago, leaving behind something less than a family and something more than I currently care to acknowledge. So that's where we begin in the house. It's I'm leaving the family home, which we've just sold for the last time, and I'm the last to leave. There's something very interesting happening in that opening of the book, and I noticed it when I read it the other day again and when you read it now, which is you don't use the first person for a very long time. There's, there's you and there's we and there's the house that you keep mm-hmm. us waiting. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was... I do want to return to the house as well, but I, I, a big question is for me about this book is what was it like for you to negotiate that writing about yourself mm-hmm. in this book and all the things that that might bring, the risk of melodrama, the accusations of the self-indulgence yeah. that I think you managed brilliantly, but how did you pitch it with yourself and perhaps with those around you? Um, well, oddly, uh, that first passage that I, the longer passage that I, uh, that I read, um, approaching the house, which is entirely, as you say, um, without an I, um, was one of the last things I wrote. Um, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a really, really late addition. And I remember reading, I can't now recall where the, the opening chapter began, but it certainly was with an I, or was using an I. Um, and I backed away for some reason. And it might be that that was to do with the things you described, something to do with not wanting to be accused of um, a kind of self-indulgence that just somehow comes with saying I. I mean, what an absurd thing to uh, to think. Um, but I think it was something else, and it was the idea that um, that the house was not static, that it would have to be something that you moved through and that the reader moved, was already moving towards and then into and then around from the start. So I think there's definitely a sort of like keeping something at bay. Um, but I think it was also partly a question of like um, of trying to establish a tone. Mm-hmm. And, and the tone was something to do with a kind of drift. Um, this book is kind of really quite discreet in terms of the division between chapters. There's a chapter on houses, there's a chapter on bodies, etc. But I think I was trying to establish something that that felt like it was gliding towards this particular spot where this callow twenty-something person is standing. I mean, I I I learned a lot uh, reading this book. Brian's very kind to say it was a nice review. I read the review, and it was a. a I thought the review. I thought the book was fantastic, but the review is kind of vilely perky and trying to be cleverer than I was, but. Um, I, the book is astonishingly about ideas of the poetics of space and memory and very light with that. And so I'm just thinking that in some way the house is, the book houses various things, including the book is a kind of house and maybe you were trying to find a, a, a tone that could house the feelings and that is something about distance or containment. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe it's too early in our conversation to start saying this, but I think it um, it has something to do with uh, reticence, um, which, funnily enough, is the word that Adam Mars Jones used about my, my last book, Essayism, in the LRB recently, um, which was very uh, canny of him because I think that it was something I was trying to establish even 13 years ago in this book was a sort of relationship between... Um, Confession would be a stupid word, or but a kind of autobiographical... Why would confession be a stupid uh, word? It would be a crude word. Um, maybe okay. we'll come back to confession. Um, but trying, I was thinking about the, the personal... The writers who say I that I most admire, mm. I think. And I think at that stage, writing this book, and you know, th- this was my first book, and so it's full of my heroes. You know, it's it's. We can maybe talk about some of those later on, but one of those would be Roland Barthes, and, mm. and um, Barthes' Camera Lucida, the book which is partly about photography, but is also partly about the the death of his his mother, was a kind of model for how I'd started thinking about this stuff to begin with, mm. um, long before it could ever have been a, a, a book, and so. I think that one of the things I admire in Bart is is that drift between confession, let's call it that, um, and a kind of not coldness, but a sort of distance, a sort of keeping things slightly muffled, slightly far, and grey. That's I, I hadn't realised just how grey everything is in that that opening, and I like you know Bart, Bart's term is the neutral. You know, I, uh-huh. I like that sort of neutrality. Yeah, I mean, I. I wrote down when I was writing notes about the book about the idea of hardening, and I suppose if, if you begin even with the sense of the stucco of the house and the something solid, um, and uh, I do think that the writing itself has a very interesting relationships with how to how to see things in with reticence or the idea of the soft and the hard, which. I mean, perhaps we want to talk a bit about another, another part of the mm. book. Um, the, I was particularly captivated by the section, the part of the book that Brian wrote about bodies. I mean, mm-hmm. perhaps you want to explain why bodies were so important to the book, or would you like to read first? Maybe I'll read first. Um, mm. This is a passage where I'm describing or I'm trying to describe um, the last time that I saw my mother's body and uh, I start in this passage with photographs, photographs of the previous chapter, so we're still sort of in the, in the realm of, uh, of the photograph um, so yes, this might be this, this is a passage about dead bodies um, but maybe it's a good way into thinking about, mm. I'm really interested in what you said about hardening, let's, let's yeah. go back to hardening uh, in a minute um, so this section is called Mortuary. Um, and again, I'm going to s- skip uh, some passages here um, just to give you a slightly more pointed uh, sense of what this section's about. In the last photograph of my parents, taken a few weeks before my mother died, I thought I'd discovered the image of her that was both the full stop to a life and the capital that set a coded sentence in backward motion into the past where I might recompose a story that ended there, in muted colours on a Sunday afternoon, as my father's hand reached out gently to rest on her shoulder. But in truth, it's only the last image before the last. There's another picture waiting for me in a place I hesitate to revisit. The photographs seem to balk and stumble before this final hurdle. 
a memorial suffix I, I must, despite my reticence, attempt to append. The image I'm thinking of now is unphotographed, but also so frozen in my memory that I can register it only as a silent tableau, a, a distant and static moment emulsified by regret. It's actually the last image of my mother which I can call to mind, and perhaps it's so difficult to focus on it because it demands that I step outside the series of frozen photographic moments and into another time, the time of real loss. Um, and here we are then, a page or so later, uh, in the mortuary at the hospital where my mother uh, had just died. I have no memory of my mother's death. Instead, I recall adjacent images, fragments of an experience I was already trying not to remember. Out of the gloom of the mortuary, which may, may very well have been brightly lit, I remember no more than the patch of light at the centre. Only two images loom with any real clarity. At some stage in the proceedings, there opens an expanse of silence out of which my father moves forward towards my mother's body. He kisses her face and, turning, gestures me towards the coffin. I have at that moment absolutely no idea what to do. I move towards my mother and lean over the edge of the coffin to kiss her cheek. But I'm quite unsure whether that is actually what's required of me. I don't remember the kiss, only this. The feeling that I'm at the centre of some vast geometry of embarrassment, that a crowd of vig vigilant shadows surrounds me. I'm gripped by the awful suspicion that if I have done the wrong thing, perhaps my father simply wanted me to join him beside the coffin, my brothers will follow my lead and we, have, we will have performed a dreadful, macabre, unnecessarily demonstrative action. A gesture quite spontaneous for my father, but somehow overwrought and out of place for his sons. I have no notion what my place is in this unexpected ritual, no idea how to behave before a body which seems a reminder only of my distance from my mother's death. And so the most lasting impression of that moment is one of unconquerable shame. The priest intones a final prayer before the coffin is closed. Again, the scene is vague and shadowed in my memory, but for the blaze of white around my mother's face. Into that paleness at the centre of the picture, there intrudes a tiny black dot. A fly buzzes around my mother's head. And then a gesture. My grandfather's arm moves into the shot, waves the insect away. But the fly is tenacious. It returns, lands lightly on my mother's cheek, and again her father brushes it off. The whole picture seems to stiffen around these movements, repeated, as my grandfather becomes more agitated, begins to cry, becomes the single awkwardly mobile figure in the stillness of the room. Stiffening, you see? You were onto something. Your mother's death was caused by... Um, my mother died of um, an autoimmune disease called scleroderma. Um, she had an especially severe case... Um, and uh, she died at the age of 50 after being ill for only about five years. And um, as its name, if people don't know of the illness, as its name will suggest, um, one of its most obvious symptoms is a hardening, toughening of uh, the skin. 
Um, but in extreme cases, um, it uh, affects most major organs. And I was really interested in, in the book in trying to piece back together again my childhood memory um, mm-hmm. of the pro the progress of that disease. Actually, it's just flashes. It's just kind of static uh, memories of particular moments of holding her hard, stiff hands and trying to massage them back to life um, because her hands will be cold, um, trying to massage them back to warmth and life. So there, there is something, if, you, if I try now um, to think about the kind of metaphorical um, undertow or undercurrent that's at work in the book, it just comes from, comes, all of it comes from that in a way, um, from, from the very idea that, that this body uh, my mother's body is hardening and stiffening and therefore somehow retreating. I've got two things, one of which is that I just have to hold that phrase, the vast geometry of embarrassment, because it was so beautiful and brilliant. Um, I, I remember going to see my father's body when I was 13 and I remember the oddity, and there is a sort of comedy about that is the, the, what you describe as well, which I think um, is 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 brilliant. Um, his, it's just a very personal question because I was just as you were reading. I what does it feel like reading that now? Is it just has it actually almost hardened into a series of words? Of a, has it composed into art for you now, or are you back there? Composed into art, if only. Is it? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't read this in a long time, and I think that when this book came out, um, people, um, not many people, because it wasn't that well known, but some people would ask, you know, has it been like cathartic? Yeah. Um, and I would always say, no, it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the point. The point was to make a book. The point okay. was to write something. Um, but I actually realized that it, it made me, it did sort of put everything, it did enclose everything. It did put everything at some remove. Um, for years, and I, I read this now, and I think, bloody hell, who wrote it? You know, who who is this person who who said the, these things? Um, maybe there is something about middle age um, that that gives more of an access to uh, whatever whatever that is. Well, I suppose that is something you can hold. Um, yeah. That book. Um, it's it's interesting. In your book, you talk about how few actually material objects you, you possess from your childhood and so your meditation or memory surrounds the fact that you actually don't have many of the talismans. You have a mm. few, but you've almost deliberately lost them, which I found very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a passage in the book where I talk about trashing pretty much everything I owned from, from my family. Um, and in fact, that's, that's in a way, that's where the book begins, you know, uh, selling the family home, uh, destroying, trashing your inheritance. Mm. Um, and fleeing. Um, so the, the 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 question of of touch, though, is, mm-hmm. is, is, it seems important in in that scene. In that scene, um, <coughs> and I, I I guess if we're talking about the passage about bodies, I was also very. Haunted, and I think this was the bit where I really was in the middle of the middle of the night on the airplane, thinking I I have to meet this person who's written about this because, as far as I read it, the the legacy of 
your mother's illness was not so much um, the objects you inherited, mm. but a sense that you might have inherited an illness or that anxiety crept into your body and it was carried on and it was perpetuated, which struck me as something that I had experienced as well. Um, and there's this is one of the reasons that I have actually pressed this book into people's hands. And I don't know whether it's, it's, it's uh, something you want to hear, that this book is actually useful as well as gloriously brilliant. <laughs> it would be nice written. if books were useful. But, yeah. but it is actually because um, I think it has one of the most extraordinary three or four pages about what it means to be worried well or a hypochondriac mm-hmm. or... Um, but in a way that makes it, it, it made huge amounts of sense to me. So it was this was my special request if, uh, 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 that you could <laughs> okay. you could share with us something the about that. The hypochondriac passage. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I was interested in, in um, trying to piece back together again the sensation that I had as a child that of, of all of uh, among myself and my siblings, my two young, younger brothers, um, I was the one who would inherit something. I was the one who would inherit um, disease, um, depression first, and some kind of physical ailment. If it was not my mother's, then something. And I was trying to kind of describe what that feeling, that particular feeling of affinity was, Um, which obviously the short answer to it is something like, love, right? Um, but what else is in it? And, and one thing that came out of it was certainly a sense that every six months or so, uh, since about 1985, I have imagined that I was about to die. Um, and I've even written a book about hypochondria um, and told people that I was essentially cured, that I had written a book about it, and that that had done the job. That's the way out. That was, that was the way out. Believe me, it's not. Um, so I'm trying to describe in this passage, um, this is just after a, a section in which I think I have, um, as an undergraduate, as a student in my first year uh, as a student, uh, collapsed because every every joint in my body has suddenly seized up and, hey, presto, I can't do my exams in the summer. Um, a year later, I turned up at the same doctor's surgery with, surgery with exactly the same symptoms. Um, sorry, in fact, yes, actually, this, this, is, this is that event. In the middle of my first university exams, the same dull ache traversed my whole body once again becoming keener and more worrying as it colonized each joint until eventually I was racked and immobile on my bed. This time there were blood tests and a more thorough articulation of my unwilling limbs. And again, nothing. I think it was then that I vaguely intuited a correlation between my ailment, which at some level I knew to be fake, and the anniversary of my mother's death. Still, this knowledge did nothing to retard the elaboration of a predictable pattern. Over the next few years, I settled into an almost annual habit. In my early 20s, the onset of summer always brought with it a diffuse unease that slowly gathered and refined itself to a sharp point of fear. In solitary hours, the fear was refracted into innumerable rays of cold light, illuminating, or so I thought, the latest signs of my certain doom. 
The pattern was always the same: a passing discomfort nursed into darting pain, in turn sublimed in the crucible of a sleepless night into a malign growth or implacable genetic death sentence. Weeks passed during which I tried to keep my suspicions at bay. I would give vague hints to those around me that I felt unwell, but never come clean about the real fears. It was only when I had reached a point of absolute conviction, certain that my symptoms could denote nothing short of whatever disorder had gripped my imagination this time, that I would make an appointment with a doctor. A few of these fantasized ailments lasted for years. In some of my many crises, if some of my many crises were easily traced to recent family history, rushed to a cardiac unit, I dragged with me the ghost of my father. Others I can only marvel at now in their baroque inventiveness. Tiny moles grew to deep-rooted melanomic proportions under my gaze. Faint rashes flourished, lurid and efflorescent, into lifetimes of disfigurement. And on and on, so on. Um, so I, I, I give this book to. I'm married to a GP. And um, when, when I ever hear um, doctors sigh about the amount of worried well people, I say, no, no, but this is really, it's not boring. It's philosophically and really, really interesting. Because what you say later is you talk about the, the idea of the addiction, almost, of, 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 of thinking about health as a, as a way of... Um, Yes, hypochondria is a way of structuring time. Yeah. Uh, it's a way of giving yourself something to do. It's a mm. way of making narratives, actually. Yeah. And about the rebirth. Mm. And you, the doctor gives you the clean bill of health or the cleanish bill of health, and then there's a sort of a now what? Um, which I just found, so I, I suppose, yeah, this is just sort of utterly and exquisitely put. And uh, the, the philosophy of that struck me as really, really important. The Gothic imagery there is uh, mm-hmm. strong. And I was just wondering, uh, while you were reading that, I was wondering whether how, how Gothic is this book? It begins with the God, haunted that, house. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, it's not something that occurred to me at the time uh, at all. Um, but uh, Frances Wilson, who's written the um, preface to, to this new edition, um, points it out, and she, and she points to the particular moments where I mention, I mention writers like Thomas de Quincey, for example. Um, and she, make, she makes a, a definite point that it, that it has a relationship with writing of that era. Um, so, yeah, I'd have, to, I'd have to admit to that. I think, mm. I think it's true. But I think it's probably a sort of Gothicism filtered through um, the one writer that I don't mention in the entire book, um, W.G. Zabalt, who I refused to read for the year that I was writing the book okay. because I thought I, I have to clear myself of this mm-hmm. influence, which, of course, I fail, entirely failed um, to do. But I think that, um, yeah, it's a particular gothicism that I think is probably drawn out of Zabel's relationship with the gothic. It's exaggeration mm. uh, of physical details and their philosophical import. And, and there are moments, for example, where you look at a picture of someone who isn't your mother and imagine it is your mother, as if there might, maybe there was a double. And so these sort of moments that are sort of uncanny. Hilary Mantel says the Gothic, she's talking about the Gothic, and she says it's an, why do people turn to the Gothic mode? And she says it's an apt form for children and for slaves and for anyone for whom the reasons of cause and effect are lost 
And I think that's what struck me reading as a child, when you're as a child encountering adult illness. No one says, well, this is happening because. This is why. You see life as this series of sort of strange and actually quite strange happenings and descriptions of your mother's illness. It's sort of the sense of kind of this a body hardening, which feels very gothic, and heated gloves bought from a catalogue. Yeah, all of those details obviously loom large in a child's imagination, mm. especially if nobody talks about yeah. them. Um, Hilary Mantel, is a, there's an amazing passage in a short story by Hilary Mantel called um, Comma, um, where the narrator remembers going as a child with a friend to spy on a disabled or disfigured child who they refer to as the comma because of the shape of this child's Mm -hmm. body, um, head and body. And she has this extraordinary sentence where she describes the face or the absence of a face um, uh, uh, on this child and how the... There's this phrase, she says, the flesh seemed to run from the bone. And I have no idea what that phrase means, but it conjures something... um, Absolutely, of that kind of childish misunderstanding, but finding a kind of weirdly poeticized, gothicized mm. version of that reality. Um, I was wondering if we could go to the the end of the book. Um, you, you, you talked about it as the coda, which is partly about music and possibly partly about anger. The only thing I think I, I kind of... I remember closing the, the first time and that I brought out at the end of my review. Is it's a very angry book, which I think is a relief mm-hmm. in some ways. But mm-hmm. perhaps we could discuss that more. If you could read us Yeah, the, the, like the book end. ends with, with a, a, a so-called coda, um, which is about... It's partly about music and it's partly about silence. And I suppose that um, the, if the book is angry about the story that it tells, it's angry about the silence, which is an entirely predictable thing for a, an Irish memoirist to be angry about, right? Um, to be angry about the fact that nobody in your family said anything about the obviously important things. Um, but it's also written at the end, and this was, I did write the coda late in writing the book, because I realized that in all of these attempts to describe um, the relationship between memory, mourning, and objects, places, bodies, etc., there were almost no voices. Um, and in fact, there, there so is... there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue. Um, there's like maybe three or four quoted sentences from each of my parents and the odd aunt or uncle or something. Um, but there, there's almost no voice uh, in the book. And so I realized late on that, that that wasn't quite an accurate depiction of the period that I was trying to describe, but that actually the voices came from somewhere else. Um, so let me just quickly read um, a section on music from the Coda. The silence that wrapped itself around my memories of my parents is soundtracked in my mind by the music that emanated for a decade or so from a corner of our sitting room. My brothers and I seem to have used music to address, obscurely or otherwise, the absences at the heart of our household. Music stood in endlessly for all that we would not or could not say. 
I remember the first record I bought after my mother died and how, at the end of a month during which I had hardly left the house, I'd been seized by this extraordinary song, fleetingly heard on television, a sort of hymn to preternatural weather, a giddy, soaring three minutes of strangeness and fragility. Or so it still sounds to me. Were I to name the song, it might mean nothing or far too much. Scared that my sudden access of interest in the outside world was as yet inadmissible, I had to smuggle into the house the seven-inch single I'd bought a few days earlier and hide it, sorry, I'd bought a few days later, and hide it, hoping I could listen to it without disturbing the silence that had persisted there since my mother's death. In the end, it proved impossible. I had to play it that evening with my father and my brothers in the room. I remember that I crouched, blushing, in the corner by the record player as a parade of synthesized strings and military drums gave way to a woman's voice so eloquently grief-stricken that I almost had to tear the record from the turntable. Such was my discomposure. With my back to the rest of the room, I was unsure whether the song was going unnoticed or had actually, as I feared, opened and healed in its brief span a sort of wound in the air between us. The song seemed too unbearably tender a thing to have introduced into the room. I resolved to listen to it only when I was alone. Over the next few years and on into the time after my father died, music became a way of perpetuating and obscuring the silence, of not having to choose between silence and speech, of avoiding the subject and letting it vibrate in the atmosphere translated into sound a thousand times. We dreamed, I think, of a sound, of a song, that would say what we could not say and that would, at the same time, excuse us from ever having to say anything. I can find no other way of explaining what happened in those final years in the house when music was away from my brothers and me to avoid speaking to one another, sometimes comically so, when we would try to drown out one another's voices by simply turning up the volume. Our competing record collections became weapons in an undeclared war of musical sensibilities, which were really something else, our incompatible responses to our orphaned predicament. And yet, music was also what we shared, sometimes the only thing we might admit to sharing, the only arena in which any emotional currency other than rage was ever exchanged. Um, I imagine that some people know what the song is. It's cloud busting, yes, Kate Bush, 1985. Why don't you say so? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, about a year later, I wrote an essay for the Wire magazine, music magazine, um, for their uh, wonderful epiphanies slot at the end of the magazine where they ask you to write about a piece of music that's changed your life. And, of course, I wrote about that song. Mm. I don't know why I didn't want to mention it. Okay. Here's, 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 yeah. I'm wondering whether I was, because I was thinking, in trying to write about the same period, and um, it's all, I wrote Music Was My Hymn Book, and I was up in my bedroom listening to Glenn Medeiros, and um, nothing as a highfalutin as Kate Bush. And, it's, you know, and is it to do with the, you talk, use the word high austerity about, about the, the experience of writing about this. Is it the sort of fear that if you, if you put pop in, it loses its hardness as a book? To actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that was the fear, and it was it was a mistake. Yeah, I, I should have put it in.
I don't know whether it's but it's interesting no, I because I've realised because I'm hesitating in, in, in including the honesty that I was devoted mm. to these the, these works, which are is it because they are sentimental or is it because they are pop? Or, no, do, no, I think it's just something that that I, I should have put in at that point in the book was was something else about adolescence and and about over investment um, mm. and about distraction as well mm. um, because music was a way of. Uh, also of, of not feeling stuff. I remember the moment that um, I first listened to Hounds of Love, which a friend at school had given to me. And bless him, he was 15 years old. And the only thing he could think to do to his friend whose mother had just died was to copy Hounds of Love onto a cassette and hand it to me wordlessly, you know. Mm. There you go. And I took it home and listened to it. And of course, it's got things like Mother Stands for Comfort on it. And you think... Bless poor, his name was David Byrne, oddly. Um, <laughs> bless him. But he couldn't say anything. I no. couldn't say anything, but, but he could hand me this thing. Um, but a lot of the time, music was also a way of not feeling. Mm-hmm. It was a distraction. And, and that, that adolescent shame that I described yes. earlier um, is something that if I wrote the book now, I think I'd want to sort of press up more to say, what, what is that? What is that adolescent combination of, um, of really not wanting to talk about what has just happened and at the same time being really furious at everybody else for not wanting to talk about it? I think that's, that's what the rage is at the end, end of the book. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Shall we stop Let's there stop. and ask Let's stop. for questions? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would love to carry on, but um, thank you so much for that. Um, so many, there's so many things that I'd like to ask. But um, one thing I was thinking of, um, uh, and you know, in my own work, I'm absolutely fascinated by the idea of 
rooms and houses and kind of making those legible in, in writing and in fiction. Um, and I was thinking about the title in the dark room and in the dark room uh, and in terms of the, the kind of a dark room in a house in which, you know, you kind of don't know what's happening in this kind of unknown room. But then obviously also the dark room as being the place where you develop photographs. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the kind of that, that relationship between the kind of static room um, of kind of a house and a, the kind of memory of a house and then also that kind of process of development that in, in photography and the kind of opposition between those two things or if you see them in opposition or how you kind of see those two things working together, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, and I think that one of the things when I started writing the book that I was really interested in um, was the history of um, memory theatres and, and the idea that that memory could be um, uh, improved, structured, um, effected through attachment to spaces and to objects in spaces. Um, and so that's partly kind of ghosting the idea that, that the book starts with space and an idea of space and you know, the poetics of space, as, uh, as Sophie says. Um, but I think that that probably is in opposition to um, the other big metaphor, uh, which is to do with, um, as you say, the photographic dark room. Um, that side of it was sort of written like under the spell of Roland Barthes, obviously, uh, who never really talks about photographic processes. He's not really interested. Um, but I suppose I was interested, but didn't want to, didn't want to say it too explicitly, um, that that might be a... You know, one of the reasons I couldn't write a cultural history of memory was because I stopped believing that memory was cultural at some level. I stopped believing that, um, that the mechanism of how you remembered things uh, had to do with those kinds of metaphors. Um, what do I mean by that? I'm not quite sure. I think I mean that um, something like the dark, the photographic darkroom is a metaphor in the book, and that means it's ambiguous, and it's a bit unclear, and it's not, it's not trying to argue something about the nature of memory or even about the nature of photography. Um, it's trying to sort of set that metaphor in motion in some way, uh, which is exactly what I think Bart's book does. It's not a theory of photography. You know? It's a performance of grief. Um, and so, yeah, I can, I can sort of talk about how these things relate to each other, but I don't think that it has anything like the kind of um, argumentative coherence that I imagined it would have when I started to write the book. <laughs> Because the other thing that this book is is a sort of flight from that kind of academic discourse on photography, on memory, on space, etc. It's using all of that material um, to escape, if that makes any sense. Thank you. <laughs> Very interesting, all of it. Um, can we go back to Bart? Um, and in particular, um, I was intrigued by... Um, the way that Bart actually involves his um, discovery, his exploration of the photograph itself, and um, uh, the cue is that word of hardness, and the toughness of the photograph where he talks about trying to feel the depth of the paper, turning it over, 
exploring the very substance, the hardness of the photograph and trying to draw out something which the photograph does not give him. And he does not give us the photograph he talks about, but the, the Winter Garden photograph in particular, he doesn't give us that. The photographs he talks about does not give him something. I sense a lot of frustration. I'm just wondering whether your reenactment of that kind of process of trying to draw things out of photographs was equally frustrating or was it a release when you found yourself doing something similar? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the answer. Um, I think that there were, yeah, I mean, there, there are two stages, one of which is like the, the, the first stage around, what, 1997 or something, of like trying to dig into these things and actually discovering that if you did, you started to remember things that I hadn't thought of for, for like a decade uh, or so. Um, but then also just being left with these kind of, you know, mute to some degree, kind of abject objects that give you something, but actually are quickly exhausted to some degree. I suppose that's... Um, do I believe that? I'm not sure. I, th- I think that that's maybe one of the things that the, photo- the photographs chapter does, is, is that it, it loads all of this meaning onto these images, and, and then actually what's left. You then have to move on and think, no, that's not enough there was the body too, you know? In other words, the, the book is not about photography. Um, and maybe it's partly about the inadequacy um, of that kind of attachment. I don't know. Um, and in a way, it's the sort of sa- same answer to the previous question. I think, looking back, that I was kind of like setting all of these things in motion in, in the book. But they're doing... They're doing something else that, that doesn't have sort of straightforward answers or doesn't have those answers for me anymore. Um, I don't know what Bart is up to in that book. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not a book about photography. It's about something else. It's about vulnerability. And, and it's not an argument about vulnerability. It, it's a, an expression of it. It's a style. It's a, 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 a tone that expresses that. Um, and if I have somehow done even like you know one percent of what Bart does in that book in terms of in terms of getting out of the mode of theory and argumentation and into that kind of vulnerability, then I would think great i've I've lived up to one tiny bit of my hero's uh, project <laughs> yeah um, and in relation to the your refusal to reproduce the final photograph of your parents was there an overlap with Bart's refusal? Yeah, that, that, that's just that's the most blindingly obvious <laughs> tribute uh, and, and or pretentious uh, effort to yeah, of course, of course one of the things that, that people say about your first book is that you throw everything into it, right and so of course I was going to do that, of course I was yeah or like, or you throw everything into it in terms of influence is what I mean. Hi. Um, just to kind of carry on on that theme, really, um, I suppose I'm interested in the photograph as kind of restorative or a kind of aid memoir 
Uh, you've alluded to that a little bit. I wondered if you speak a bit more about... I think there's a... I'm trying to remember the exact quote from Sontag, but it's something like the peremptory power of the photograph. Mm -hmm. In other words, its power in terms of hardening, the kind of coalesce memory around an image, say, but in that kind of risk supplanting it or expunging it altogether. Yeah. Um, I don't think I... Yeah, I do, I'm not sure. I don't think I trust those kinds of general statements about photography anymore in the way that I probably did when I wrote this book. Um, I wrote the book at a time when I was beginning to write about art and in particular about <coughs> photography. Um, and I think that the experience of, of having to think about those kind of canonical writings about photography, Sontag, Bart, um, Walter Benjamin, um, at the same time that I was like discovering what contemporary artists were doing and had what artists had been doing with photography uh, for some decades, that was very different, that just wasn't reducible to these uh, ideas about mourning or about distance or, or about fixed fixedness um, was was really important actually um, and there's a couple of moments early on in the book where you can sort of see me uh, wrestling with that and escaping a little bit into other kinds of work and in fact Tacita Dean is the first one of the first artists who's, who's mentioned uh, in the book and I think that looking at her films was a kind of way although she's somebody who's clearly indebted to all of the same people uh, there was something about discovering the kind of mobility um, and um, very poised, very elegant, very muted in some respects, but filled with potential um, imagery in, in her work that sort of broke out of that. Um, I love Sontag. Sontag's writing means an awful lot to me, um, but I, I sort of can't believe anything she says about photography, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, right in the back. Oh, sorry, there's someone here. Yes, um, I was wondering kind of about about the place of psychoanalysis. I mean, you can scarcely talk about memory and mourning without having that in the background. And I guess you kind of answered saying you don't want to be an academic. (laughs) Um, But surely, I mean, all the characters in your pantheon kind Mm. of have a... Yeah, they do. And and what I realize now, looking back at the book and realizing that and trying to think about that absence, which is really obvious, um, is that uh, the the kind of pantheon, and it is a sort of pantheon in the the book, is is based not so much on um, a sense that these are persuasive uh, models for how memory might work, but that they are kind of styles, that they are tones, they are voices um, that have meant something to me. And I've always been really, really interested in the idea that um, Freud's writings, to begin with Freud, um, have a kind of novelistic literary quality uh, about them. And so those moments when memory impinges or or there are lapses and, and things come apart... Um, have a kind of literary quality, but I've never felt it. I've never felt it at all. Um, and so I think that Freud, for some reason, just is not part of that constellation for me. Um, 
Yeah, and it, it's it's an inadequacy in turn if if one thinks about the kind of broader sweep of um, of thinkers. But I think that that looking back, that's probably why he's not in there. Um, I'm going to try and be greedy and get two in, if that's okay. Um, the first is, you, I just wanted to jump on what you said about the fact that you wrote this book when you were beginning to write about art. Mm-hmm. Is there not something about writing about visual art, and especially sort of plastic visual art, um, that comes back to this idea that you were talking about, about hardening, like a sense of kind of trying to harden a sense of impressions into... Mm-hmm. An environment into a kind of a textual environment that the reader can experience. And then my second question was: um, Did anybody else write the uh, history of cultural memory? <laughs> um, I don't think anybody had the, had the hubris, the arrogance to think that to think they could. Um, so, a really interesting question about um, writing about art. I think that um, because I come from an entirely literary education, um, and, and partly philosophical, um, but mostly literary, um, that writing about art, and especially writing about photography, was for me a training in how to write about the world, uh, in the sense that um, I've carried on writing about art, and especially contemporary art. Um, but I think that one of its most important effects uh, was really early on, which was, how do I describe what's happening in, the, uh, in an image? How do I describe an object? How do I describe a, a sculpture? But much more for me, how do I describe what's happening in a, in a photograph? What are these things? What is this arrangement in, in, in space on this flat plane? And trying to find a way of describing those things before you began to theorize them, critique them, contextualize them, etc., um, was for me a training in how to describe human beings um, and places and all kinds of other objects. Um, so that, that, I think, is the, the relationship. The, the book has, makes all kinds of claims for um, some of the artists in it, like Tacita Dean um, and Rachel Whiteread. But the much more important link um, uh, that I can now see um, is that writing reviews of exhibitions and, and photography books taught me how to write about all of this stuff, basically. I, um, so I'd just like to say in closing, I think it struck me while well, you've been talking throughout that you're incredibly modest about this book. You're good at criticising it. Um, so I just want to finish by saying that I, I think Francis Spufford in the introduction has called it um, a meditation on mourning, an excavation of memory. I think Koytobin called it a, oh no, it's Francis Wilson, sorry, a, a, a meditation on the poetics of loss. Um, it's now, and I'm, I'm just so glad it's been reissued because I think it's, it really is going, it is a classic. It, 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 and I was thinking about that beginning when the eye, the eye doesn't come in because it lets you in. It is a really, that's what I, th- there's a lot of, while it's a book about you, it really is an extremely generous book. And it, it, it is an important one and a precious one that I think meant a great deal to me and still does and will mean a great deal to people in times to come. So I think we're probably out of time. Well, Unless we have time for more questions. still buy some books. But we have time Please. to buy the beautiful yeah. book. And have them signed as well, I hope. Yeah. Um, may I cut in and thank yes. you both? Is that okay? Absolutely. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you for being here. And 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Sophie, so much. Come and buy some books. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.